Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the voice user experience and strategy podcast. Dustin Court is joining us once again. Hello there, Dustin. Hey Kane, how's it going? Very, very good, thank you very much. Very, very well indeed. Super excited for today's episode with Ben Sauer. Ben has worked uh, he's worked with mega clients across the globe, Virgin, Tesco, Pearson's, British Gas, Penguin Random House, the BBC, the list goes on. And he's kind of been, I think he got in, he's been involved in the voice scene for quite a while and he's approaching it from a design and strategy perspective. So it's going to be something different that we haven't quite touched on in great detail just yet, but it's going to be absolutely immense. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. I think uh, with experience like that and with a new, fresh uh, perspective that we perhaps haven't heard too much from before, I think I think all of you listeners are really going to enjoy what we're about to discuss. And he's from the UK, so there's another British accent. <laughs> there's been a. I've gone through the uh, the list, uh, you know, when I was updating the the website and stuff like that. And most people that listen to this podcast are from America. And when I was looking through the guests, we've had—I don't know if it just transpired that way—that it must be it must be booming in America because most of the guests have been American. Yeah, it's uh, you know you got Amazon and Google both based out of the U.S. Uh, the voice uh, the voice speakers coming from the U.S. to begin with. That's how things go, but it's it's expanding pretty rapidly, and I think we talked about this on a previous episode. It doesn't seem to be centered so much in the Bay Area or in New York or even in Seattle like we might have seen with the web or mobile. Mm. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without further ado, this episode is going to teach you everything you need to know about finding a use case and figuring out where to start in voice. Ben does a lot of work on the upfront strategy and design and product direction stuff. Uh, And he's going to teach you everything you need to know from having nothing, going through the concept of discovery and arriving at a use case that has been tested and is a valid use case to start building on. So ladies and gentlemen, this is Dustin and myself speaking to Ben Sauer. Ben Sauer, welcome to VUX World. Ah, uh, thanks, Kane. It's nice to be here. Very nice to have you. Very nice to have you. I first come across you, Ben, a while back, quite a long time ago. I can't exactly remember when it was, but it was. I can't. Was it? At, it might have even been at Brighton Football Stadium. There was a conference, and I'm sure it was you. There was someone from Clearleft there presenting to a load of government people about how you should be designing websites. I'm pretty sure it was you. Yes, that was me. I remember that. That was a that was a good few years ago, Kane. That was ages ago. Absolutely ages ago. And now you are involved in the voice first world. Do you want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got involved in the voice first space? Yeah, sure. So um I, uh, until fairly recently, I worked for a design agency called Clearleft in Brighton. And um, Clearleft's very small, but we were known for kind of doing some interesting work. Like we made a usability testing tool called Silverback. Um, we run UX London. There's lots of things we did that were sort of, I don't know, punching above our weight, if you like. Um, and I was a design strategist there, so I would lead a project sort of figuring out, you know, what a product or service is supposed to do and helping an organization figure out how to get there. Um, and about, I think, three years ago, I started to ask questions because a lot well, where should I start with this? I, I've often got this sort of sense of like, you know, trying. I was trying to help my clients figure out what's next and um, how the sort of environment around them is going to change. And I started to ask this question about voice UI uh, as it started to become, you know, more reliable and more of a thing, which was, you know, when does it start to make a screen interaction redundant? Um, so uh, I started to think about that a lot. And then I started doing talks on like how design and voice might change like or how um designers might need to respond to new modes of input if they become more popular and 
so as I was doing more talks about it at conferences, um, you know, I suddenly realized, oh, this is, this is, you know, with the rise of Alexa, this is really a thing. And then I started to learn more about how to design and we started doing some stuff internally and, um, yeah, just kind of went from there. And so now today, um, I'm an independent design strategist. I specialize in voice and, um, I'm doing a lot of teaching and training and speaking around the world. Uh, and starting in August, I'll be training people in Voice UI for O'Reilly Online, so you can come and join my uh, teaching sessions about that if you like. Yeah, that's me. You mentioned there. Did you mention that you're writing a book? Yes, I am writing let's a book. Start, let's let's start with the book, Ben. Tell us about your book. <laughs> I will. It's not about Voice UI. It's something. Right, let's that, move on then. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do a little uh, explainer of my book. So um, for many years, I've been having these conversations with designers at conferences about like, you know, um, where, where do your design skills come from? What are your influences? What are your interests? And I suddenly, well, not suddenly, I, over time, I started to realize that a lot of people in UX have brought something from another domain into UX. Um, so for me, it was studying literature um, and, and performance and doing a lot of drama when I was younger. So I, I, I realized that there were certain things like presenting and understanding the subtext of an issue or seeing sort of reading between the lines that I found relatively easy to do. And then I was hearing so many of these stories, like people would talk about, you know, what they learned in their music career, for example, that I realized that there was a lot of stuff that we that we bring to design um, that we don't talk of as design. And I think that younger designers kind of have a innate sort of hunger to kind of soak up some of these deeper lessons and, and want to know more about um, sort of how to how to define who you are as a designer and what to draw on. Um, and so I've decided to basically write a book about these stories. So I'm going to interview a lot of designers that I know. I've started doing it and bring these stories together in a book. Um, and it's sort of a hypothesis at the moment. It's not um, um, the shape of the book might change over time. I'm not sure, but it's called Secret Design Skills because that's sort of what I'd like to uncover. What are the kind of secret weapons in your toolbox as a designer that um, would be good to kind of share and then also make it practical. So not just like people telling their personal stories, but also people um, giving you clues about how you can start to see the world that way or put a certain habit into practice. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so you've come from a kind of graphical design background. We have spoken, I think it was Brian Colcord was the only other person so far on the podcast who we've spoken to who from Voices who's come from a kind of a, a graphical kind of design background. What are some of the first things that sort of strike you when you, I mean, it sounds as though you sort of gradually moved over into the sort of voice and in a sort of natural progression. Some people listening to this will be just thinking about, okay, I need to just I need to make this switch because this voice thing looks really interesting. What are the, some of the first things in your first impressions of the differences between designing for voice versus designing for a screen mm. yeah so um, i'm going to preface what i'm going to say by saying that i've never been a particularly strong graphic designer um <laughs> i think I'm, I'm a good like design thinker um and in fact i haven't really been designing gui for a long time i'm more of a strategist and a researcher um but i found vo designing for voice very natural i think one of the key things that you you start to learn very quickly is that well, I, 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 I'm going to sort of go around the houses a little bit, but yeah, hopefully yeah. this will make for an interesting story. Um, when I was at Clear Left, I, I started to notice that a lot of the designers there were, um, I don't know, a little bit OCD. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that a lot of uh, people who come from the graphic designer, you know, they, they, they have that in mind. They love to make order out of chaos, right? And we, we used to do this terrible thing in the office where I, I, would, I would take my laptop and I would sat, sit next to somebody and I would just leave it slightly off the desk, like a, you know, an inch of my laptop would be off the desk. And then I, you know, a little bit later, I'd notice that somebody sort of pushed, pushed it back and straightened it out. So definitely, you know, there's a, there's a sense of like making neatness, right? It's like a, yeah. it's a definite thing that, 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 that designers who like that kind of thing are drawn to it. And it's an incredible kind of skill and, and, and desire to have that. Um, I think one of the biggest things when you design for voice is this just the essentially the kind of loss of control that you experience, right? Because 
you know, you don't get to control what, what people can do and see, right? You do, and well, I guess you do get to control what they can do, but you're not communicating that to them in the moment necessarily. So I think there's sort of um, an acceptance that comes with designing for voice where, okay, oh, wow, I'm, I'm really not in control of this. I can try to, you know, herd users and I can, and I can try to use directed dialogue to kind of uh, give them very literally the options that are available. But I think that um, actually just realizing that you're trying to think ahead about all the things that somebody could do when they respond to something that you've put into your system is a very different practice to, you know, I've defined these three options on screen. Um, I, I was thinking like a good metaphor for designing for screen is like um, a gilded maze, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you can leave the maze at any time, but you know, it's been made very pretty and the designer chooses which ways you can go. You can, there are options in there when you're in the maze, but you know, that's exactly what, there's no deviation and voice design is, well, I haven't come up with a, an alternative metaphor yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's nothing like that. I mean, um, Philip Hunter, who was one of the heads of design um, at Alexa, I don't think he's there anymore, but um, you know, he said that it's like, it's like being in a dance that you're not in control of. I'm paraphrasing badly, but that's what he said, you know, is that you're not... <laughs> Um, your dance partner is going to potentially do something weird and wacky. <laughs> <laughs> Freestyling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's um, it's funny that because I've seen and come across quite a few sort of design choices in, in voice-first applications where, I mean, you're saying there that essentially the, the scope is, is almost endless and as a designer you need to kind of preempt what people are likely to say as opposed to defining what people can say. But I have come across a few, you know, skills and stuff like that where they do define, you know, you can go left or right or if it's an interactive story or you can check your balance or whatever, tell me what you want to do. So in your opinion, do you think that that is not necessarily the right way to go to, to go about it in terms of defining up front what people can and can't do in a voice application? Um, well, there's some subtle distinctions in there that I probably didn't um, cover very well. But, um, I mean, there's a difference between defining what you can do and what you can say, right? So, you know, obviously all applications have functional limits, things that they can and can't do. But I guess I was really specifically focusing on, you know, when you design a screen, there are two options and there's nothing else. And, you know, um, I think Brett Kinsella likes to say, you know, um, screen your uh, voice UI is unbounded, right? So you might give them two options, but then they can say a third one, <laughs> you know, so you're not, you can't exert the same level of control over their behavior. So, yeah. Um, as to your question, I think, I try to practice like management of expectations, like so making it very clear what um, an application can and cannot handle. But then you're obviously trying to push the technology and the design so that they can speak to it as naturally and freely as possible. Um, and, and you're juggling the constraint and the freedom all at once. Hmm. And what about... So that's kind of some of the differences between design and itself. And you mentioned there that you, you focus heavily on the strategic side. So from a kind of product strategy perspective, is there anything different that you would do when you're going through the the, the process of figuring out what this thing is from a, from a vo in, in, in a voice world versus in, a, in, a, in another kind of world, whether it's a website or another digital tool? Is there anything from a, from a product strategy perspective that's different? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, as we all know, right, voice is extremely error prone to because of the environment and it's it's a much messier mode of input, isn't it? So I, I sometimes joke like um, a Glaswegian accent never broke my trackpad. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's, you know, like it's just the fact, right? Like it's, yeah. um, and so, you know, because of that, you're, you're, you're aiming to find things which are... Um, uh, it's a little bit more like sifting for gold, right? Like your, your, your potential to find something that's useful in the voice context is a little bit lower at the moment, I should say, right? Like, um, because you can't, well, longer, more complex interactions are better off on a screen. And because, you know, it, it's so hard to have somebody's attention in a conversation for a long period of time. Um, and it's so insensitive to the environment, both, 
physical and social, right? You know, um, it, not not everybody wants to do all of their interactions in a mode where everyone around can hear them. So because of that, you're you're doing much more searching for kind of the right use case, um, and that to me is kind of much more the job strategically is to find that thing that an organization should start with that suits the suits the mode yeah mm -hmm. and that's what that's one of the kind of problems i think that that people have or one of the challenges that they have and there's there's far more interest even when we started this podcast there's far more interest now and it's noticeable from the people that are either reach out to us or from the people that you speak to and the general activity online there is far more interest in this space now from brands than there was even at the start of this year and i've even noticed that in the last six months and it's it really is starting to gain traction and I think one of the things that, that you mentioned some of the differences in terms of what the differences between voice and what the differences from, from the graphical side of stuff, and you can't just take your app and just make it voice enabled necessarily. If it, so w when, when brands are approaching this sort of area, how do they go about finding a use case? I know you gave a talk about that at the Smart Voice Summit in London, and I know that it was it, the, the time slots were very dense. Um, <laughs> so, so we have got a little bit more time here to get into into a bit more detail. So yeah. where do people start when you're yeah. trying to find a use case for, for this stuff? Good question. So, you know, I, I, I talk about this part as the sort of first, when I teach this, uh, very design, you know, this is the kind of, um, you know, the first part of the process is this search for, you know, what's the use case? What is the functionality we're producing? And I would say that has sort of two sub phases, right? So generative, like finding ideas and then evaluative and saying like, is this a good idea? Like, should we carry on? So um, I've got like a, in that talk that you saw me give, um, you know, I, I, I sort of reeled off a list of tools it was more sort of a big list of things <laughs> rather than a kind of really considered process um so i think that there are in terms of like finding ideas um for use cases uh there are four kind of lenses that i'm using at the moment and this is just a work in progress right so this isn't like definitive answers but um so user research, right? So like if you looked at a user's uh, entire journey, you know, in relation to whatever your domain is or your thing is, you know, so where are they having conversations or interactions where voice might help? And that sometimes is, you know, might be something you can support with, um, you know, so something you're, you're doing already and you're just kind of moving it over. And then sometimes it might be, you know, something new, which, which is uh, results in a new behavior. So, I don't know, I can't think of a, a new one off the top of my head, but, um, well, I'm working on a new one, which unfortunately I can't talk about at the moment. But, um, you know, for example, like um, I know British Gas, they do, um, you know, you can give your meter readings, right? So by looking at the entire user genome, like, what, is our, what does our user do across this whole thing? Um, for our American listeners, British Gas is our sort of main energy company. Um, so how much have I used? You sort of have to report that data back to the organization. So that's one simple short use case where you might go, oh, okay, across our whole user journey, here's something which would be better replicated by, you know, voice interaction. Then I would say the other thing is um, like customer service. So some of the best design work I've ever done really actually comes from like sitting in call centers and actually just listening to the conversations that people are having, you know, so, so actually take call centers out of it. Just say like, what conversations is your organization having with people right now? Um, is there any part of that that could be replicated? You know, um, I mean, really dull, but you know, if your IVR, your phone system is already doing something that actually be, be made much more accessible if you did it over Alexa or Google home, you know, maybe it's a lift and shift. I don't know. I wouldn't do it that way, but, you know, <laughs> get the point, right? Like maybe it could be even easier for a customer if they didn't have to dial a phone number. Um, then I would say the other, the third thing I think about is like brand and creative. And, and this is where things are doing very well in the voice ecosystem. So, you know, uh, think of HBO, right? They tend to launch a voice skill for all their new big shows, like all new seasons. So like they did something for... Um, Westworld. Actually, did Rain work on that? I can't yeah. remember. Oh, no. Right. Uh, uh, pull String. 
Uh, okay, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, you know, let's do a brand tie-in, something creative that gets users engaged. Um, so you can think of like the games ecosystem, I guess. Um, you know, those things are actually doing really, really well because, you know, audio is highly, you know, adaptable for sort of entertainment purposes. Um, and then the last one I think is, uh, I guess I'm, it's, it's a pretty broad thing, but I just call it like futures lens, right? So could you sit down and start thinking about behaviors that don't exist yet and, and kind of, if you start to predict how, for example, the voice ecosystem, smart speaker ecosystem is going to change things in future, then that might result in first or second order effects, things that we haven't seen yet, that actually we could be the creators of. Um, you know, so, um, well, I can't think of an example again off the top of my head, but, but you can start to imagine that there will be things that we're doing in this space that we are not doing now. Again, actually, I'm, I'm working on one right now. So, again, unfortunately, I can't talk about that. But, um, yeah, you know, so, so new behaviors, basically. How do you start exploring those? And, Ben, who do you think are going to come up with those new behaviors? Do you think it's going to be, uh, you know, the weekend warriors uh, hacking away and without any profit motive? Or do you think it's going to be these big brands who have a lot of money to throw behind it yeah interesting i uh, i think there'll be a mixture of the two sorry that's a really politician's answer isn't it <laughs> <laughs> you know you'll see you'll see the case where we you know we might have another you know zuckerberg or somebody who's just hacking away mostly on their own do something really crazy and insane and then you know um it'll take you know if you imagine something that needs an infrastructure behind it like an you know the equivalent of an uber like it's not just the voice interaction or you know dominoes the pizza infrastructure right <laughs> the pizza delivery infrastructure um i think it you know it might, it might be a mixture of both of those things mm. and then when you're talking about thinking about the future and future use cases you mentioned in that talk again you're talking about the futures wheel is that is that the thing that you would use to try and figure out where it might lead to in future and then carve out a a path sort of thing yes yes indeed so um what, what, to tell us a little bit more about the futures wheel yeah i'll try i'll try and describe <laughs> it audibly <laughs> <laughs> i'll link i'll link to it uh, you did send me yeah, a link sure. to, to i think wikipedia or something so i'll link to that there so people yeah. can go and check it out but in terms of like what it is what the point of it is how you use it and stuff like that yeah yeah sh sure um a little bit of backstory here because it's interesting have you seen the movie ex machina um I don't know if I've seen it. I do know which one you're talking about. I can't remember whether or not that's one of the ones that I have seen or not. I can't remember. Okay. Maybe it's, it's about a, a you know a sentient AI. Um, it's sort of a, a, a near future thriller where um, somebody goes to um, a remote place where somebody else has built this you know super secret AI, and then um, they sort of get trapped in there with it. It's kind of creepy and scary, but the location is pretty amazing. It's actually is it the, shot is it the one that's in the woods, in the cabin in the yes, woods? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it was um, it was shot in this uh, really special um, hotel called the Uvet Landscape Hotel in Norway. Um, and I went on a retreat to discuss the future of AI um, with um, lots of designers and sci-fi writers. And it was, yeah, it was pretty cool retreat <laughs> to be there. If you go and have a look at the pictures of the place, it's amazing. <laughs> and it was there that I learned from uh, Chris Nacelle, who wrote the sort of sci-fi interfaces book about the future's wheel. Sorry, oh, okay. a bit of backstory. Cut no, that no, out that's good. no, 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 I'll keep that in. That's good, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the future's wheel. Um, the future's wheel is um, where you, you, you take a sort of prediction about how things will change in the future. So let, I'll, I'll make one up as we go, right? So... Um, people talking uh, to objects, right? So, so let's say Amazon's strategy of making lots and lots of devices have Alexa in them continues, right? So more people talking to more objects, right? So you draw that in a circle, like people talking to more objects. And then you say, okay, well, what, you know, what are the first order effects, right? So you say, what are some changes that we will see in the world as a result of that? And then you draw a line out to another bubble and you say, okay, let's draw a first order effect. Hmm. So by that, would you mean in that example, more things being made with the voice interface? Yeah, that might be a simple one. And then yeah. like, um, um, or like, 
I don't know, let's get a bit stranger, like, um, you know, uh, people having fewer social relationships because they're talking so much to their objects, right? (laughs) I'm just getting a bit weird and silly, right, for the sake of it, right? Um, And then, so once you get a first, a few first order effects around your central one, then you you go for for second order effects, right? So you say, um, okay, uh, if people become reclusive because they're talking to their objects all the time, you know, what happens? Oh, well, then, you know, we start to have uh, uh, therapy centers, you know, where people can go and recover from their addictions <laughs> from talking to people, right? And then, and then this is where it gets really funky, is where you draw connections. So you say, well, if, the, if these two second-order effects or first-order effects happen in parallel, then what happens? Like, if I combine these two things, what then is the result? Um, off the top of my head, uh, you know, I can't think of one, you know, but... Um, <laughs> you know maybe um teenagers get banned from using voice interfaces in order to make them socialize or something i don't know like yeah. it's, it's in japan you know there's this whole class of young men who sort of retreated into their bedrooms and don't work and don't socialize so there are sort of i know this sounds wacky and crazy but there is precedent for what for what i'm sort of predicting here um and so it allows you to really start thinking a bit more deeply about where uh, a technology or a trend um might lead you to and I'll give you a sort of historical example of how these things play out. You know, I think it was Benedict Evans. He said, you know, I'm sure he got it from somebody else, but he said, you know, it was easy when the car came along to predict um, highways, right? Oh, when there are lots of cars, we will need wider roads. Yeah. What wasn't so easy to predict are like shopping malls or shopping centers, you know, or the fact that entire cities would, would reorient themselves or entire economies even would reorient themselves around cars and you know real estate how we socialize and all this stuff shifts around the 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 core change and no one you know in the victorian era was thinking oh you know shopping malls right like no one was predicting that right so i'm only going to buy a house if it's got a drive (laughs) right yeah exactly you know um so that's why I find it useful when we start thinking about how things will change to to start thinking about first and second order effects. Mm. That's interesting. And then how how do you then rein that back to a use case? So in that example you've just given there in terms of uh, more people talking to devices and objects and then that leads to some social isolation which then ne- leads to counselling and so forth <laughs> <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here first from Ben Sauer if that's going on in 12 years time <laughs> so bringing that back then you might then have, correct me if I'm wrong is this the way it would work, is that you would bring that back and say okay so let's try and make something with voice that is far more so- social that gets people talking to each other yeah i mean that's one way i mean often i'm doing this to to explore um like the ethics of something so the thing i'm working on at the moment is highly ethically sensitive so we're doing that kind of stuff to kind of flesh out here's the things that could go well here's the things that could go wrong that we want to ensure our design does not encourage um but to bring it back to your question about like how is this relevant to a use case i think it actually is just starting with something a little bit simpler right like so starting with something that's not maybe as broad as the one i mentioned so um you know if people start to you know a lot of things a lot of the things that people are thinking about in voice are like um the fact that a voice assistant will make the first choice for you if you ask you know where should i go to eat or you know what batteries should i buy you know so taking something a bit more, bit closer to now and a bit more constrained a bit smaller in its scope and say well you know, if I'm an organization that currently relies on SEO and we're result number three, you know, on Google, and in the future when people's buying habits shift to voice and we're number one, what sort of things are we going to need to protect ourselves against or mitigate now? Um, or what use cases do we want to to see happen now? Um, yeah. That's interesting. That's quite a, it's a, a good way of thinking that because I think that people can get quite caught up in the now can't they? And think, okay, we need to do, we need a, we need an Alexa skill, you know, we need to do that now, as opposed to thinking about what's likely to happen in the future and then starting to plan for that kind of thing. That's, yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. So, sorry, go on, Dustin. 
I was just going to say, and so Ben, how do you, how do you calibrate then? How do you uh, not just make predictions and then walk away, but also how do you personally keep up to date to make sure that you're on the right path and can, uh, you know, change your, change your tactics if need be? Um, <clears throat> good question. So I think, um, uh, it's incumbent upon all of us in a bleeding edge era to be, to have our ear to the ground. Um, I'm not like a huge daily reader of trends, but when, you know, the voice space shifts a little bit, you know, I, I'm usually close enough to it to understand, okay, now this changes the way that we might talk to things, you know, when duplex comes along and things like that. Right. So, you know, I guess having your ear to the ground, um, and, and I suppose competitively as well. Right. So you've got to know if you're in a particular domain, um, how things shift, you know, and, and being and not being attached to your roadmap, I think is probably one of the most important things. And that's not just in voice, right? But you've got to be able to kind of say, wow, this new thing means that what we've been working on is redundant and maybe we shouldn't work on it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, and that's painful, right? You know, because you've got the sunk cost fallacy in psychology, the idea, you know, that people cling to ideas that they put a lot of time and energy into. So, um, you know, if, if, um, the thing I'm working on at the moment, you know, my team are heavily invested in it and we've been designing for this use case for a while and you never know, you know, one of the big platforms might come along and just go, Oh no, we've done that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you've got to be able to just go, uh, one, one really interesting thing there, um, slightly off topic, but was, uh, amongst innovation teams, the idea that you should have to be able to kind of let go how do we let go in our lives, right? So um, the way we do that is actually through mourning, right? So sorry yeah, to yeah. get a bit serious, right? <laughs> so I've, I've heard that there are innovation teams that actually, when they go through highly iterative cycles and they're throwing a lot of their ideas away, they actually sit down and kind of have a little bit of a, a cuddle, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a bit like, of a cry. <laughs> yeah, you know, to say, okay, well, look, you know, we, we put our heart and soul into this thing but we all know we have to let go of it now. Let's celebrate the hard work that we put into it. Mm. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to do, isn't it, as well? Especially when, you, when you're involved in, in areas or in projects that have got you know, senior management support and then it's kind of like it's, it's that person's sort of reputation or whatever that's on the line if, if the project doesn't go ahead. And then you do see you know, opportunities to, to kind of stop working on something that isn't quite working that get pushed through because someone else is invested in in looking after their ego rather than looking after what actually matters yeah absolutely it's really hard um i was in a, a, a gas station a petrol station the other day and i noticed that this one particular brand had been sort of inventing their own payment system and <laughs> i was like i i, I I'm not loyal to any particular brand of petrol. I don't understand. <laughs> you know? And you just think, well, how many years or months of development did that, how far down the road did they yeah. get? Well, somebody went, um, Apple Pay? Classic. So going back to the the use case identification, you mentioned again in, in that talk, um, there was a, a really – Again, when we when you talk about coming from from another space that isn't voice, moving into voice, and and people you mentioned at the very beginning in terms of your book, and people having previous experiences and previous stories and previous skills and tools that they've used elsewhere, bringing that into design. One of the things that you mentioned, which I had come across before, before, but I, I love the way that you mentioned and, and related it to voice, was the double diamond of design. Mm, and I think you yeah. kind of started it off by saying something along the lines of people don't tend to come up with enough ideas. And then yeah. you, you were kind of going at the double diamond design. So why don't people come up with enough ideas? Why should you come up with more ideas? And what's the double diamond of design? Sure. Okay. So the double diamond of design is a way of talking about an idealized design process. And it's something they do teach in sort of quite traditional uh, design school. So, um, where should I start with this? Um, so just imagine two diamond shapes next to each other and then label one uh, discovery and the other design. And the idea is that in discovery, you spend a lot of time exploring the nature of the problem that you are solving. So you do user research, you do strategy, you look at your competition, you look at what the technology is capable of. So you're not designing, you're not actually coming up with any solutions. You spend a bit more time kind of 
what they what they call as framing the problem. And so the diamond part of it is that you go out broad. You know, you, um, I'm using my hands on a podcast. How dumb is that? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, you think broadly about it. You know, you go out wide, and then you say, oh, "Okay, I think I understand the problem now." And then you narrow down and you sort of frame it. And then you're in the middle of the diagram. You're in that that sort of that that point where you say. I think I understood the problem here, and now I'm going to design some solutions to it. And then you go wide again. Um, so you come up with as many different solutions as you can think of to the problem that you've discovered. Um, and the reason you do that is actually it's a reasonably well-studied phenomenon. If you give two groups of people um, a design job, so you know, um, I think they did it in pottery at first. So they said sort of. Um, Okay, they gave one group of people a pottery wheel, and they said, right, you lot, you're going to design uh, one, you know, ideal ceramic shape, and then you just work on it for a couple of hours, you know, and make it the best you can. Keep iterating on that, on that shape. And then if you give another group of people, you know, a pottery wheel, and you say, right, I want you to come up with 30 ideas in an hour or something, right? I don't know what the numbers were, but, you know, you, and it forces them to, to come up with, a lot of a lot more ideas and and the best ideas come from that second group very consistently they find this and there are there are architecture firms that do nothing but this double this this bit of practice of just cranking out as many ideas as they possibly can for what might solve the problem so to relate this back to voice what i see a lot of is like going for the first use case that pops into people's heads too quickly right so oh, wouldn't it be great if dot, and then all of a sudden you're building it. But, well, yeah, but hang on, slow down a minute. Like, actually, like, is that the best place to learn? Is the interaction too complex? I've seen that in a few teams where they've actually gone straight for the really hard ones because they're perceived to be high value. And actually, to kind of get off the ground and get moving, maybe you should start with something a bit kind of, I don't want to say less complicated, but but shallower, like the, the, the interaction is not as deep. Um and maybe even of more frequent use to a user. Um, so uh, as I said in my talk, like just, just spend a lot of time coming up with ideas and then throwing them away. And most of them will be terrible. And a lot of teams aren't, and organizations aren't comfortable with coming up with bad ideas. But actually, you should be, you should be spending time doing that. Mm. So in that first phase, the kind of research phase and defining the problem phase, we you got we kind of spoke a little bit earlier on in terms of you know you could look at contact center calls you could look at wherever anybody else is talking to the company to try and get some sort of ideas for where to start and stuff like that and given your kind of background in user research and stuff like that, is there any other sort of user research um you know practices or, or things that are useful for for exploring um potential problems should we say um yeah i mean i uh I do a lot of workshopping around this. So um, I have this method um, which I uh, have sort of iterated on from various people. Actually, Cards Against Humanity is a, is a really good starting point. You know, it gets you to pair two, two things, right? That, and a lot of design can work really well if you just kind of take two seemingly random ideas and smash them together and see what happens. So one of the things I do in workshops is one of the things I, I talked about um, is if you imagine a user in a lot of different contexts, so driving to work, coming home from work, at work, you know, having your breakfast, having your tea, right? So, so, so make a massive list of contexts or environments that the user is in and then make another big list, usually on post-its, of um, things that, um, a user might want to know about so you know i don't know uh, or just domains in fact industries like you know uh, banking um cooking and just 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 think of broadly about lots of different stuff and then just start sort of randomly smashing the atoms together right so you, you just kind of move them around and you go oh well what question or or uh what thing would be on my mind in that context you know if i'm driving home from work and I'm thinking about banking what you know in you know uh, what question might I have you know oh do, do I have do I have enough money till payday you know that that question so it inspires you creatively to think of a lot of use cases and questions and again it's about 
just getting loads and loads and loads and loads of ideas out as many as you possibly can before you pick the one. Hmm. And how do you know which one is the one? I think people, people yeah. you mentioned there, people just get an idea and go for it. And I've seen that on, on a on a project scale. Someone has an idea to do something and all of a sudden there's money being invested in it without even defining what the problem is properly. So if, if people are so accustomed to just getting an idea and running with it, and now all of a sudden they've got this kind of paradox of choice in front of them, which is a whole load of ideas. Yeah. How, do you, how do you kind of steer that thinking to, to, for people to understand where they can actually start and what's a good idea? So I guess user research is the principal way we do that. We, we you know, spend time understanding what the, uh, uh, I guess, high value in terms of value to user, um, a problem that they're currently suffering from, and then well suited to voice, you know, so uh, appropriate to a social context, um, a quick interaction that they can mostly have off the top of their head, you know, it doesn't require a high cognitive load to get it done. Um, something that would not be better off done on an on a device with a screen you know so you could start to cross ideas off you could go oh you know well that interaction's clearly better when you do it with a screen because it involves a lot of choosing things you know voice isn't great for choosing things so okay cross that off uh and so on and so on um so uh, what i've done with teams in the past is that appropriate to both voice generally but also to uh, a particular domain we're working on you know so i worked on something a while ago it was sort of safety related so okay um what are the really important factors that we need to choose through through the lens of safety you know i think at the moment though to answer your question i'm although i see a lot of design where i think oh that hasn't really been thought through and it's not necessarily offering a lot of value I don't, I, you know, I really don't discourage organizations or individuals from just trying things out. You know, I think there's a lot of what I would term as dross on yeah. the skills store, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that isn't well thought out. I gave you the example of sort of um, reminding you to take your keys out of the house, but, <laughs> but but you have to talk to it in order to be reminded. I mean, that just doesn't work. You know? <laughs> um, there's a fatal flaw there somewhere. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately, we're in a phase where it's more important to learn about voice and how it works and to get teams exploring voice than it is to sort of hit the right use case. Um, that's what I say to a lot of organizations is you, you, if you're going to, you know, some people say, you know, don't look at the puck, look at where the puck is going to. So that means right now, you know, you shouldn't really necessarily have any commercial constraints on the th stuff you're building. Don't expect to make money off of it right away. That's probably not going to happen. I mean, for some people it is, you know. Um, but don't expect to make money off of it right away. Um, spend more time learning about what people like and what's appropriate and how to build and design for voice. I think that is the most important thing that people need to do or to emphasize right now. Mm. Do you yeah, think... Uh, Sorry, go on, Dustin. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think... What's interesting in that front as well is that we talked about voice being an sort of unconstrained user interface, but in a lot of ways, voice is actually among the most constrained interfaces because of the technology. Yes, uh, yeah. uh, the, and the technology is going to get better. So if we're waiting to maybe build what's going to be there in five or 10 years, uh, we don't have the technology for it right now. So I think you're right that, uh, you know, getting out there and, and learning how it works today and, and setting yourself up for tomorrow is going to be uh, perhaps the most important thing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Does in, in doing that, um, so there's a, there's a really, one of the other speakers at the smart voice summit, Ben, which you might remember, Hemel Jill and her, and, and um, her talk was essentially around, it was looking at a study that they've done which is looking at how people explore smart speakers when they first get hold of them so there was this graph and it goes up and it says as soon as someone gets hold of a smart speaker for the first week they experiment with it quite a lot and the usage is really really high and then what happens is after a couple of weeks they stop exploring and and the usage sort of dips and then it plateaus until it gets to an event like someone comes around or they have a party or some, some occasion happens that causes them to explore it a bit more. And then it peaks again a little bit. So 
And one of the things I've been thinking of, and I just wanted to see whether whether you think this is the case or not, but in, in releasing apps and skills and actions that are substandard and not very good, does that have a detrimental effect on the brand? Does it have a detrimental effect on the platform as a whole, as in this Echo is a load of rubbish because this so-and-so didn't work? Or does it not really matter at this point? What are your thoughts on, on that? Um... I think you're, you're, you've zoned in on something really, really important. And it makes me think of, um, let's take Apple, right? Like why are there, for the iPhone, why are there sort of developer restrictions and their approval process so strict? It's because they know that if the phone crashes because of some bad code, it has a much more detrimental effect on somebody's perception of Apple than something crashing, let's say, on your desktop. You know, a phone is a much more personal device. And to extend that out, you know, um, you're speaking to Alexa, right? An Amazon brand. Um, I know that might change in future. And Google's already, you know, obviously allowing you to connect to a perceptibly different brand when you talk to an action. But um, definitely, and I would say that's a stronger effect. Um, However, uh, yeah, does that does that cause somebody to have a really, are there things out there causing them to really dismiss voice as a UI overall? I would wonder if no, what's actually more likely to turn them off is less of a bad experience. Well, uh, sort of a bad experience, but just a limit on the functionality, right? So like it cannot do X, Y, or Z, you know, because that, I mean, I, I, I take that right back to Siri, right? When I first started using it, it was maybe 2012, and I went through that exact curve. You know, it was like, try, 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 try for like, I don't know, a month, and then uh, I'm done experimenting now, and I can't even be bothered to remember to try new things, you know? And the methods for telling us about what's new on a voice platform, and or even just getting us to remember what's there is is really, really hard, and I don't think, you know, Amazon's weekly email about what you can discover via Alexa is really cutting it. It's a very hard challenge. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting when things like, um, you know, uh, can fulfill intent requests become more widely used. I don't know if you, I don't know if listeners know what this is, but Amazon have created functionality now where if a skill can respond to a particular request, you, the, the skill can sort of put its hands up and say, I can do that. So you can see a future, maybe more medium term, where people can say, you know, uh, tell me what time the flight from Istanbul is landing in London Gatwick. And, you know, maybe Amazon can't fulfill that request, but maybe they know what is the top skill, and therefore that's how discovery will work. We'll, we'll occasionally just ask these random questions and then as skills come online, they will put their hands up and say, Oh, I can do that one. And again, it's that sort of extreme SEO problem where, <laughs> well, you know, there's no second option. There's only yeah. one brand who gets to answer that question. <laughs> I suppose they could introduce a choice at, at some point, but then I suppose that then you're, you're into a, a to and fro, which you'd probably rather could probably do without. Have you had any experience with that kind of fulfill intent, Dustin? I haven't implemented can fulfill intent on Alexa yet, but uh, the Google Assistant platform works very similar with the actions there. And I found it's just, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, I get 25, 30 times as much traffic on a single action uh, or single voice application on Google than I do on all my Alexa skills. Uh, and it's because those people who haven't installed it at all, but are coming through it for a generic question. I think that's going to be really great for both users and for developers as well. If the developers, of course, can build something that's useful. Yeah, yeah. I did see, I did notice that um, Amazon have started in the app, they've started um, showing skills in the actual Amazon shopping app. So I was looking, I can't remember what it was I was looking for now, but I was looking for something um, the other day, I think I tweeted it actually, and literally in the Amazon app, in the kind of list of search results about around all these products was this was a skill which i thought it was, is, is a good effort to try and solve the discovery problem but i was just trying to think whether or not there's any situation where i'll be looking for a product and, and rather have the skill <laughs> it's a weird one isn't it yeah yeah i think there's a few there's a few uh few 
things to be solved there, I think. Um, so let, let's kind of wrap up that that whole kind of... We've, we've spoke a lot about upfront work and strategy work and define any use case and stuff like that. And then we've kind of gone through to, um, you know, research and prototype uh, not prototyping, but, but defining what the solutions are and things like that. And we won't go right through to the development bit, but before you do develop something, I know that you'd mentioned and you you did a, a, an article on it, and I'll I'll try and dig it out. But you were it was an article where you were um, it was all about VUI design essentially, and one of the things that you were were kind of talking about was the concept of Wizard of Oz testing, which we've touched on. I think I think a few people might have mentioned it in the past, but is that something that you still use? And and if so, can you kind of explain a little bit to the listeners about kind of what it is and how you would do it? Yeah, so um, it's still something that I do do a lot. Yeah, so Wizard of Oz testing is the idea that um, before you write any code or you build anything, you could get the design sort of 80% right. Um, and the way you do it is is very simple. You just write your script, how you think the conversation will go or how it should go. And then you have your computer um, respond with the answers, but they're you know, it's just like a soundboard. You're just pushing a button to have it read out a pre-scripted answer. And then you conduct, you know, what is essentially a usability test where you have somebody come in and say, uh, the, the one I often use in my talks is um, uh, you're designing a meeting recorder app. So people at work can record their meetings, the audio of their meetings. And so you give somebody a brief, you say, okay, um, Alexa, you know that Alexa can do this, right? You know Alexa can record your meetings. What would you ask it? And then somebody pretends, you know, to interact with a, with Alexa. I often use a Pringles can just to kind of fake it. Um, and then you are pushing the responses on the keyboard, your prescriptive responses. And you find out very, very quickly where that interaction, those conversations break. And then you can ask some questions afterwards. You know, how did you find that? You can start to see how well your sort of imagined version of that dialogue, whether it works and, you know, you can iterate very, very quickly because you, you haven't built anything. You haven't built any technology yet. You've just kind of created what I would call, a, you know, a smart fake. Um, and so uh, by doing that, you'll get very, very, very quick answers about whether you, your design is actually working or not. Mm. So would you... Uh, and would, is it... Sorry, go on, Dustin. <laughs> sorry, Kane. <laughs> and is it necessary to do that on a computer or is it okay if you have someone speaking for Alexa instead? I think it doesn't really matter. I think the speaking example, you're going to struggle with how people interact because they will, their reaction is going to be a little bit different. They will get into the mode of speaking to a human. Um, I know people prototype chatbots using WhatsApp. So they have a list of pre-scripted answers and they're testing whether you know, by doing that conversation with somebody in a different room, in fact, you literally physically separate yourself from that person, um, whether it, the the flow of the dialogue actually works. Um, so um, I would I would probably steer away from doing it as a human, but there's no reason why you won't learn anything from doing that. Mm. And would you... Fact, I, think, I think actually Amazon might have... I can't remember how they did the original Alexa Wizard of Oz testing, but... They certainly faked a lot of it in their early tests of Alexa. Yeah. Um, and it, I'm not sure if it was a human reading it out, but maybe typing it. I don't know. I'd have to look back. Yeah. Yeah. And w would you design the entire thing or what you think is the entire thing? Or would you kind of design just chunk by chunk and, and do that? Yeah. Yeah. No, you would definitely do that. It's, it's it, Wizard of Oz testing an entire experience is an incredibly um, reductive, tedious process, which you shouldn't bother with. What you should be figuring out is like, what's the 80% right? You know, what's your happy path, as people say? Because what it then allows you to do is figure out where all the problems are that you then need to spend more time carefully designing and testing later on. Um, but no, you shouldn't Wizard of Oz. Like, uh, the thing I'm working on at the moment is a, is a long flow, and honestly, Wizard of Oz testing that would be a nightmare, so don't bother with that. Just figure out what your, your principal interactions are, your short ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you then, so when you're doing the training and, and, and working with clients and things, do you kind of, are you involved in the entire process throughout the development and build as well? Or do you kind of help them figure out where to start, get them a first iteration, and and they then look after that after that? 
Um, it depends, like on what the project is. Like uh, at the moment, I'm heavily involved in something for a, for a semi-long-term basis, so I'll be there throughout launch and so on. Um, but mostly, um, my capacity is sort of advisory. You know, I come in, I help set things up, and um, because I'm a bit of a sort of design process nerd, you know, and that sort of kind of thrive on, and I'm a strategist, you know, I sort of help frame the thing, and then I might come back for advice, but I don't necessarily get involved. Uh, in all of the nitty-gritty yeah cool and before we wrap up do you want to tell people about voiceprinciples.com yeah sure so um (laughs) good idea um can i can i plug two things yeah go on go on then yeah (laughs) yeah so um voice principles when i started to learn about voice design a couple of years ago um if you've ever tried to learn, you know, there's not actually a lot out there. You know, there's only really one book, Kathy, Kathy's book, um, uh, in recent uh, times, and and so I felt like there was this sort of um, the design resources were lacking in this space. So um, my the company I used to work for, Clear Left, has a long history of kind of just trying to put educational design resources into the public space we did a lot of that and we we, we would often give talks about what we'd learned and so i thought well actually you know if i took the really good bits and then i just put them all in one place summarize them and that would be really really useful to people so if you want to sort of go and see like a massive list of loads and loads and loads of advice about designing for voice and just sort of take it all in in one place go to voiceprinciples.com um if you have a list of voice principles you've been working with please just let me know about them i'll I'll maybe include them on the page um so yeah it's just a really good start and so when i talk to people like i I had somebody a mega brand recently sort of say you know i i skipped weeks of researching this stuff by finding your page so it can really help you get started quickly um and that's the stuff i love is just being able to kind of give that to give that to people um and on the same tip in terms of learning like if you want to actually as a team have a go and learn about this stuff I have super, super fun workshops for people, a day-long thing where we learn about voice and then we create something and we Wizard of Oz test it. And I can promise you prototyping and testing with voice is way more fun than doing that um, for screens. So I just absolutely love doing that around the world. And uh, yeah, if you've got, if you're curious, if you're voice curious, uh, just come and get me to do that for you for a day. Fantastic. Wicked. Dustin, any final thoughts or any final questions for Ben? No, I think this was great. I think we covered a lot of really good information. Thank you so much, Ben. Wicked. Where can people find you, uh, aside from Voice Principles, if people do want to go ahead and and book a workshop or something like that, how can people find you? Yeah, sure. So um, I am at bensauer.net, S-A-U-E-R, and I'm Ben Sauer on Twitter. So, yeah, just get in touch. Fantastic. Ben, thank you so much. That's been really, really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. No, it was good fun. That was Ben Sauer. Thank you, Ben, for joining us today. That was an immense conversation all about all of the upfront work that you need to do before you start building so that you can get your design right and you can get your strategy right. I love the concept of of trying to come up with um, lots and lots of different ideas rather than getting your mind set on one idea. I think that's a, a really, really imperative takeaway because the amount of things, and it's not just unique to voice, it's it's all projects and most projects all over the world in every industry. Someone gets an idea, before you know where you are, there's a project initiation document signed and you're moving with it. People don't explore enough ideas, so that is really, really, that's a really valuable insight there. Um, I love the concept of trying to define the problem first as well, that double diamond of design, starting out researching the problem, doing all of your user research, figuring out what conversations you're already having with people and what kind of demand they have of you, what they're asking about, what the queries are, um, and then using that insight to define your problem. There's no point in just having a harebrained idea and then just developing something. You may as well, and the way to go is to build it based on what matters to people and what people are actually already trying to do. Is one idea because the other idea is the futures wheel which we spoke about which is all around trying to predict where this technology is going where user behavior is ending up what the knock-on effects of all that stuff are and whether or not you can start as to use ben's word and also uh will hall's word from rain agency start skating to where the puck 
is going. So where is this stuff going in the future? Where do you see that taking you? And can you start putting in the wheels or getting the wheels turning now to try and take you to where that puck is going in future? Lots and lots of insights in there from Ben. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. Thank you, Dustin, for joining us as well. I hope and I really do think that this will give everybody who's listening, whether you're working with a brand, whether you're at an agency, whether you're a hobbyist just trying to get to grips with what this voice thing is, I really do think that taking your time and getting your strategy right and getting the design concepts right and testing and prototyping those early ideas and coming up with lots of different ideas and then vetting them to figure out which one stands a chance of working is a far better idea than just running with the first idea you've got. So I hope that gives you some food for thought. I hope it gives you a place to start now. Uh, and if you do want to take in uh, or take on a full day's worth of, of enjoyment, to use Ben's words, it, is, it sounds like a fun workshop. If you do want to get involved in that, then give Ben a shout. Again, thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thank you, Dustin, for co-hosting. And thank you all for listening. Until next week, see you later.